As men, we can become preoccupied with financial success. I've certainly felt that at times myself. But the team and I have designed a quiz that's going to help you improve your intentions to achieve better results for your career and business. And there's a link to it in the show notes. I'll tell you more at the end of this episode. But for now, enjoy listening. The things that were very easy to talk about was, you know, we're having arguments, you know, the marriage isn't working, etc., etc. But there was one sentence that just refused to come out. And that sentence was, there's violence in this marriage and I've been on the receiving end of it. Welcome to Stories of Men, Beneath the Surface. I'm Alex Melia. Join me as we discover what it means to be a man in the modern era. A lot of men find it difficult to ask for help. That becomes even harder when what we've been through is still really taboo. Ten years ago, Zahir was working for the Foreign Office in Bangladesh. On the surface, he had the perfect life. Great job, beautiful apartment. He even had his own driver. Zahir had just gotten married to a woman that we're going to call Sarah. They were young and in love. But it just goes to show, you don't always know what goes on behind closed doors. The truth is, we were both miserable. We were arguing quite regularly. We were in our apartment. Um, it was in the living room. We'd furnished it ourselves. We had, you know, our favorite pieces of artwork up on the walls and it was all very cozy. If you'd come in, you'd have thought, wow, this is a very happy place. What started out as a regular sort of argument, it escalated and at some point during the, the argument, I came out and said, look, things, things can't carry on this way. You know, this isn't good for either one of us. We've got to talk about ending this marriage. Her reaction to that was um, to, to look at me and then to stand up, come to me and push me and pin me up against the wall. She then put her hands around my neck and looked deep into my eyes and said, if you ever think about leaving this marriage, my father will come and he will have you murdered. Don't even think about it. I'm standing up against this wall. I'm frozen. My breathing is heavy and I just want the ground to swallow me up. I'm pinned up against the wall by someone who's, you know, 30, 40 kilograms lighter than I am. She's very petite, but I might as well have been pinned up by someone, you know, who was a six foot five rugby player. I was absolutely petrified. I didn't react. She then turned around, stormed off, walked out of the door, slammed the door behind her. For the next hour, I stayed where I was. I was frozen where I was, against the wall. I gradually sat down and curled up as a ball. I wasn't crying, I was just sitting there. When I did then compose myself an hour later, I think I got up and went back to, back to my life um, and just pretended this whole thing hadn't happened. So it wasn't even in your mind at all. You'd literally just erased it. Yeah, very much. With you know, within an hour of it, I I pretended the the whole thing hadn't happened and just went went back to normal life. And you didn't think about it at all. No, I think it was it was my way of dealing with it. Um, it's not something I felt able to talk about. Um, it's not something I knew how to process. Um, and the best way to get through that is to pretend it never happened. Tell me about the next interaction you had with Sarah. 
so she she came back a few hours later. I mean, she'd gone off at this point. Again, it was in in my head. It was it was as if the whole thing hadn't happened. Um, and so she came in. It was a completely normal interaction. She walked into the door, um, and I didn't talk to her about it. At some point that evening, we had to interact um, possibly about having dinner. And when we did, we sat down and just had dinner as if we normally would. We weren't at that point pretending that everything was, was okay. I mean, we, we were sat in silence having the dinner, but certainly ne neither one of us addressed what had happened. She sort of came in and got some food and sat down and I did the same and we sat and had a meal together. So, and then, you know, we, we, we got some space after that and uh, she traveled back um, to, to see her parents for a while. But it's something which at, at the time, I didn't really process it. I didn't ask anyone for help. Um, I didn't tell anyone this had happened. For me, there was a lot of shame around it. It was almost as if it was a, a sign of weakness for me that I allowed something like this to happen to me. Four or five years later, I'm still married to Sarah. And, you know, a, a lot of these uh, deeper issues that we were having hadn't been dealt with. By this time, we've moved countries again. Um, so the, the nature of the work is you, you spend three years in a country and then move on to the next one. So by now we're in Egypt and again, beautiful backdrop, you know, you've got pyramids in the background, great apartment that we're living in. And we'd, we'd had a son and my, my daughter had just been born as well. So she was born in uh, Cairo. And, uh, I think, you know, in, in the interim time that, you know, the, the relationship hadn't got any better. I mean, Kids are a great way to distract um, parents from from their problems, um, and so you know we we got on with um, raising uh, our son, um, which you know we we both did a very good job at and worked very well together on that. But the, these deeper issues were still there, and they'd, they'd be sort of regular arguments in the meantime. So when my my daughter was born, um, uh, Sarah went and spent some time with her parents so that um, she could get some rest and and some some help. Um, with uh, with my daughter as well, and I had um, I had a month where uh, she wasn't there and the kids weren't there, and it was in this time when I realised look there's something wrong here, and I realised that I wasn't happy deep down and that I hadn't been for a long time, um, and that's when I I reached out to a, a therapist, and I remember the first conversation with him where he said look what's the problem here and the words just wouldn't come out. The things that were very easy to talk about was, you know, we're having arguments, you know, the marriage isn't working, et cetera, et cetera. But there was one sentence that just refused to come out. And that sentence was, there's violence in this marriage and I've been on the receiving end of it. And I remember it must have been 40 minutes into that conversation where I thought, look, I've got to say this, this is relevant and this is something which is bothering me. And for five or six years, I've not talked about it. And, um, yeah, it was, it, it felt like a huge um, obstacle for me to actually come out and say those words. Um, and when I did, I then spent a great deal of time just talking about largely that incident, but then, you know, things around the marriage. But it was, it was the first time that I'd confronted what had happened, um, but also um, asked someone to help. How did you feel when you said those words? Oh, it was hard. I, I felt, um, I felt ashamed um, I felt like, I almost felt like I wasn't a man by admitting that, well, one, by allowing this had happened, and then two, admitting it to someone. I felt weak. 
um, for me, it was, you know, I, I've always taken pride in being strong and composed. Um, whereas to, to actually come out and, and say that for me was, was almost admitting defeat. It was admitting weakness. It was admitting that I needed help. And the, the idea that I, I would need help, it was, it was alien to me. Can you mention kind of what other forms of violence were there in the relationship after the first incident happened? Um, so in terms of physical violence, this, this was the only one. Um, now, you know, there, 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 were, there were lots of other sort of dysfunctions um, in, in the marriage. We had very different tolerances to conflict, which is something we, we, we learned um, through uh, marriage counseling, which we, we tried before uh, finally ending the, the, the marriage. And I guess this is where our backgrounds make a difference and are quite relevant. As a child, I witnessed domestic violence. My reaction to that was to say, I will never do this. But alongside that, um, what happened was I, I built a very low tolerance to any form of conflict. Whereas I think with, with her background, you know, it's, it's a very different culture that, that she came from. And, you know, it was people are much more open and outspoken and, you know, people raise their voices and all of that's completely normal. And, you know, so we, we'd get into a lot of arguments and, you know, th this incident w wasn't something isolated in the sense that it's the only time that happened in, in my marriage, but it, it triggered lots of sort of bad, bad memories from, from the past for me. And thanks, and thanks for sharing that as well. How did you feel about sharing that? No, it's hard. I, I don't talk about this very much. Hmm. Had she ever apologized for, for that incident happening? No, she hadn't. She'd ever mentioned it? No, she never has. I mean, to, to this day, she hasn't. Hmm. How was the rest of the conversation with the counsellor? No, it was great. And, um, you know, we unpacked the marriage. We unpacked what wasn't working. It was those conversations that then led me to ending um ending the marriage um i remember one one phrase and this is uh fast forwarding uh, a, a couple of years again um after i first um, shared this with him i think i think we spent more time talking about the marriage rather than the incident um but at, but at one point uh, a couple of years later when we were talking in the midst of a conversation he he threw out there he said Oh, I, I think for me, when I talk about this thing, I, I still refer to the incident. Um, whereas for him, he threw out the phrase, you were assaulted. And I refused to accept it. I, I went quiet when he said that. And I thought, no, I wasn't. And he said, yes, you were. And I said, no, I wasn't. It was just something happened. It was, you know, I was describe it how you want. I was pinned against well, whatever. He said, no, you were assaulted. And I refused to accept that. And it took me a good 10 minutes after that phrase, I heard that phrase to actually mentally accept it myself and say, okay, that's actually what happened. Mm. Why is it you felt that you couldn't accept that word? I think it's because it's admitting what had happened. I mean, my, my way of dealing with something like this is to just pretend it didn't happen. Um, I think for me, being strong, being composed, um, being useful to others you know the, these these are, are dominant themes um in in my life i mean the, the nature of the work that i do is you know it's all about helping other people it's doing good and this idea that actually i need help that something bad happened to me um was something i i couldn't accept because you created this image in your mind and you were this person you're this strong man 
as you said, composed, you can deal with anything. So that was almost like someone had found a chink in the armor. Yeah, it was admitting that, you know, I'm, I'm not made of Teflon. Um, it was admitting, you know, to, to, to have accepted what had happened would have been to admit that there's weakness. Um, and that's not something I, I wanted to do. Why do you think we have this image that we have to be strong at all times? We have to be this dominant man, even though perhaps we're not at times. Yeah, it's 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 a great question. I I don't know if I if I have any good answers to that. I think for for me, it's you know in in relationships, you know we 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 slot into roles um, very easily, and you know sometimes it comes from society, but you know so, something that in, in my relationships people have have valued and appreciated is, you know, I, I offer strength, I offer stability. You know, my my very first girlfriend would say what 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 she liked about me was that, you know, I, I was this rock um that could be be relied on. And so I think for for me on a personal level it was it it's a role I play very easily. I play it very naturally. But um I'm I'm sure there's all sorts of conditioning that that got me to that point. So many men deal with trauma in many different ways. And I was almost putting myself in your shoes, as I do with a lot of people who come on and talk about their stories, thinking about how would I have dealt with that situation? For me, I just wouldn't be able to erase it from my mind. That It'd be on my mind constantly all the time, even though that was a really difficult situation you went through, that I'm almost impressed that you could literally just forget about it and just move on because I don't think I, I could. But then, like I said, everyone deals with things differently, don't they? Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't the best way to deal with that situation. You know, if, if you don't confront things head on, if you don't ask for help, then, uh, you know, the, these things don't disappear. They just bury themselves and they, they will come out at some point. That's what happened to me this summer where, you know, 10, 12 years after the incident, out of nowhere, it came out again. So when did this come out again? You said 10, 12 years later, what situation were you in and, and how did you feel at the time? Because I've had situations where I've had traumatic situation happen and it comes out when you least expect it and it's a shock to the system and it's almost like this loss of breath, this sort of panic attack that I, I usually experience. But how was it for you? Yeah, so it happened this summer. So, you know, by, by this time, uh, I'm now divorced. Um, the kids are growing up. They're seven and nine years old very happy kids um i'm now on you know very good terms with uh, with sarah who uh, is now now my ex-wife um the divorce was amicable everything got resolved very very quickly um and you know i'm i'm in a great place it's uh, i'm happy in life you know thoroughly enjoying my work very satisfying i've got a great group of friends um and out of nowhere one friday morning um i woke up i'm in my apartment and I'm just feeling overwhelmed, but I can't explain it. There's nothing that's happened that should trigger it. It's, you know, um, and generally, I mean, this doesn't happen very often where I'm feeling overwhelmed, but when it does, uh, walking helps me. So I went, went for a walk. Um, I'm lucky in where I live. I'm next to Paddington. So there's a great canal, which I often walk by. Um, I'll often stand outside the train station. And so I thought, okay, let's go for a walk. Whatever this is, it will pass. As I went out, it got, it got heavier. It got, it got deeper and I'm being overwhelmed suddenly started showing physical symptoms. So now I'm short of breath. I'm deep uh, breathing, as you say, um, heavier. 
And then the tears start. And I cannot explain this. I can't explain where these tears are coming from. And uh, I'm standing outside the station just crying, but trying not to, to, to sh you know, not to let people see that here's this this man that's standing outside the station on, on a Friday morning just crying. But I, I couldn't stop it. I couldn't help it. And then the flashbacks started, um, and the flashbacks were real. It wasn't a memory. It was as if I was transported back 12 years to this place, and I am there in that living room again, and I've got someone, and I can see her face standing in front of me with her hands around my neck. And again, I'm frozen, and I'm powerless, and there is nothing I can do about it. And that became the reality. That's where I was. I was reliving this. Um, it took me a few moments to, to recognize that I'm not actually reliving this, that I, you know, I am where I am. And I thought, okay, let's go back to, uh, to the apartment. Um, and so I went back to the apartment. All, all the other symptoms, uh, are still there. I'm still, you know, I can't stop the crying, the breathing. Um, even the flashbacks, they're still, they're still happening, but, at least I know how to make my way back. And I went to the apartment, I climbed into bed and I curled up and I must have stayed like that for, uh, for two hours before it calmed down. Um, and I, I made any sense of, uh, of what was going on. And how did you deal with the aftermath later on after those two hours? So, you know, this, this is a great contrast to how I dealt with things, um, when, when it first happened, which was, you know, by, by now I've learned you've got to, to address these things. Um, and so I, I sent two messages straight away to people I trust saying, look, I'm not okay. There's a problem here. And what, one is the, the same counselor that I, I've been working with. And the other is a, is a very good friend of mine, Christina, who has been a, a source of, of huge strength and support to me, uh, generally. Um, and you know, both of them were fantastic. Um, my counselor said, look, there's a problem here. We need to get this dealt with, you know, I'll clear my diary. Let's, let's address it head on. And in the meantime, Christina said, look, whatever you need, I am here, uh, here for you. And, uh, is, is something which, uh, which I, I appreciated it. So, the, the big difference this time was was just accepting straight away, I am not okay, there is a problem here, and I need help, and I'm going to ask for it, and that does not diminish me in any way. Um, if anything, it, it sort of shows strength to be able to do that. For me, there, there's there's something about vulnerability. There's less judgment, there's there's more acceptance um, with, with certainly uh, my, my female friends in general. And yeah, the, the, the great thing with Christina was I did not have to hold back anything. Whatever was going on was okay and was accepted. It was just, look, whatever it is, it's happening. You come, you sit down, and I'm here for you. It's a massive thing, isn't it, when you when you unload all of this to a friend and you just feel this, uh, this sort of, thank God I've told someone else. Thank God it's not all on my shoulders. Yeah, there is. And, you know, it's that, it's that vulnerability. It's just accepting, look, you're not okay. You need to ask for help. And if you do, it is there. Um, I think, you know, may, maybe one of, one of my fears in the past may have been, look, okay, it's a, a sign of weakness to ask for help, but also what if you ask for it and it's not there? You know, what do you do then? But in what had happened to me um, this summer, I could not have asked for more in the sense that I reached out, I said I'm not okay, I asked for help and it was just accepted and there's, you know, there were two people who, who were there for me um, unconditionally. 
for me, the key to it has been acceptance. Um, it's, it's rare to find people who are willing to accept you as you are, no matter what's going on. Um, and it, it's almost, if, if you can have that, then other things fall into place very, very quickly. My natural personality has not changed. You know, I'm still someone who likes to be in control. You know, I'm still the, you know, a strong person where, um, you know, I figure things out on my own. But when I can't be like that, all I need from someone is that acceptance. Um, and if I have that, then I will still figure things out by myself. And so, you know, it's one of those things where it wasn't that I needed advice. I didn't need solutions. I just needed someone to be there for me. 10, 12 years ago, when you were in this marriage and this assault happened, did you have those people that you could turn to, those friendship groups? Yeah, so it's a great question because actually I did. But what's interesting is that I didn't make use of them. When I look back now, I can point at three or four people who would have done exactly then what Christina did for me now. But I never made use of that. Sometimes I find as well, when you speak things out, you almost come up with your own conclusions where you just kind of keep these thoughts kind of going around in your mind. You don't learn the same way. So I feel like just speaking out is massive, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And I do find that generally speaking, the answers are there. I mean, occasionally there is a, a time when what you need is professional help. And I think that uh, I'm, I'm very glad that um, I also had uh, my counselor who, who knows how to deal with trauma and what he did for me was very different to what Christina did for me. But, you know, in, in terms of this, you know, on, on friendships and acceptance and, uh, you know, what, what, I, what I find is usually if you have someone who's there for you and you can talk through things out loud and, you know, sometimes it's not talking. I think people respond um, in different ways. For some people, they just want to sit with someone or they just want to be held in some cases, or, you know, it's something as simple as, you know, someone to, to hold your hand. Um, uh, I think often that that's enough to, to, to help you figure things out by yourself. I mean, I, I have a lot of this with, um, with my daughter where, um, you know, she, she loves being held. Um, and whether it's me not being okay or her not being okay, all it takes is for me to take her, put her on my lap, and she will do her own thing. She has an iPad. She'll watch um, some videos. But if I'm sitting there and I'm holding her, it's, it's incredibly powerful for both of us. If she's upset, that's what she wants. She doesn't want to talk about it. She doesn't want someone telling her what to, she just wants to be held. And, you know, for me, it's, it's the same thing that that, that process of me being sat there just hold, holding her is incredibly powerful for me. You know, for, for those moments, it's, it's almost like, whatever happened this morning, it didn't happen. It's, you know, it's a cleansing process. When someone comes to us with a problem, especially as men, we just want to go solution, solution, solution. I can fix this. I'm the DIY man, but we don't necessarily always want this. And it's interesting because I've done this previously where I, especially with women, I want to give them a solution, but then you can clearly see that they didn't want that or they're nice about it at the time, but they say later on, I preferred if you'd have just listened to me. And then if I come with a problem to a male friend, female friend, family member, whatever, I reflect back on it. And actually when they gave me solutions, I didn't want that either. So I wanted them to just listen to me, but I'm trying to fix other people's problems, but I just want people yeah. to listen to me. No, I, <laughs> no, I, I, I relate to that. It's, uh, 
yeah, like I, I myself, like you, I'm, I'm learning over time, but actually what people have done for me is exactly what I need to be, be able to offer them back in return. And, and you're right. There, there are people and, and, you know, th this isn't necessarily a gender thing that, you know, I, I know lots of female friends who are very smart, very strong, very independent, and they don't want solutions. They just want that acceptance as well. Uh, the acceptance and just being, just being there, um, to, to listen. And I think that the great thing with kids in particular is that they haven't been through this conditioning in life where you, you are taught that, you know, you've got to think things through and offer solutions, et cetera. Um, and you know, that I, I, I think what you're saying is exactly why it's one of the reasons why my relationship with my kids is, is as strong as it is, is because actually at the ages which they're at, they don't have agendas. Um, and as a parent, the, the only agenda you have is, is their well-being and, and their happiness. And so actually there is a lot of what, what you're describing, which is it's this, look, I'm here for you. You know, it's, it's being seen, being heard. Um, and, and just this, this unconditional, uh, acceptance. And I think with kids, it's a very easy, it, it's actually, it's easier to do that with kids. I find, um, with my kids than, than it is necessarily with, um, with friends or in, in relationships. I have learned that when I'm sat with my close friends in particular, the first question I ask them won't be what have you done today or what's going on in your life. It will just be, look, how are you? That, that will be the first question that I ask them. And it's incredible how quickly you can get to what's actually going on. You know, I, I think, I think it's two edges of the same sword. I think that there's one, which is my, my advice to anyone else who can resonate with what, what I've talked about today. Um, which, which hasn't been easy. It's, you know, it's, it, this is something I, I don't talk about enough and I, I should talk more, more about is it's okay to ask for help. But then equally, as you're saying, um, with, uh, with the friends that we have, it's, it's good to keep a, a sense check of whether they are okay or not, because there, there are lots of people like me, um, who, who don't want to come and ask for help. It reminds me of a situation where a guy kicked off with me about a year ago. I was in Mexico. And I was just shocked by it. I said, how are you? It was just a guy walking past. I was at the hotel and he said, why are you asking me that question? I said, what? I was like, what are you on about? I was just asking, how are you? He's like, but you don't actually mean, you don't actually mean it at all. You just, it's just an empty question. You know, actually ask me a, a question that makes me think you do really care about how I am. And it really annoyed me. <laughs> I was really triggered by it. And I was just kind of shocked because you just say that all the time. How are you? How are you? How's things? But he really went, he went off on one. He went into this sort of rant about how people say these things and they don't mean it. I don't know whether he's had some sort of difficult scenario in the past or some trauma around someone saying, how are you? But it, it did make me think. And actually I thought, well, instead of me being the victim of this situation, can I actually learn something from it? Should I just be asking that question when I don't actually mean it? I mean, if I'm completely honest, I didn't necessarily, it was just a, oh, hi, how are you? But I actually didn't mean it really. And I think that's the thing that triggered me because maybe it was just a, a conditioned response, conditioned greeting that I'd done for many, many decades. You know, I, I work in an office with 600 people. I'm not going to talk about you know my what's going on in life um each time i, I pass someone in the corridor and so I, th I think there is a place for just hey how's it going good how are you great and and you move on but i think that the key thing is sort of knowing the difference between that which i think is perfectly okay i think what one needs to be able to do that versus then knowing when when you're actually genuinely asking that question with good friends i'll say no 
let me ask that question again. How are you really doing? And that's when people will tend to open up. But it's, it's no, it's a, I, I used to um, live in America for a while and I think it's awful that it's so much worse than it is um, in the UK because there it's like, you're almost not allowed. Yeah. If you're not okay, you're not allowed to say that they expect the response where if someone comes, Hey, how's it going? If you actually turn around and say, well, look, I've had a really bad day. They get so uncomfortable and so awkward. Um, this, this, this is, this is my experience there. Um, and so I, I think there is a place for sort of courteous greeting. There is this sort of fake positivity, toxic positivity, whatever you want to call it, where it's not actually completely genuine. And I think that that's definitely an issue because then that's suppression of negative feelings, suppression of how you actually really are. And I think that's something that we absolutely should address because we can't just go walking around saying, oh, life's great, everything's great, but really you're just suppressing trauma that you should probably just let go of and w whichever way you want to use it as catharsis. The last question I wanted to ask you today, and it's potentially a tough one, so feel free if you don't want to answer it or not. Have you ever thought about approaching Sarah and talking about this whole situation and how it's affected you over the years? Um, I mean, we, we tried to confront it um, when we were doing marriage counselling and it's not something she wanted to accept then. Um, I think I certainly haven't approached it since. I probably wouldn't approach it now just because, you know, I, I, I do still want one of the things I, I do still live with today is, is this very low tolerance to conflict. And, you know, as, as far as uh, divorced couples go, you know, we, we've managed to hit the being on good terms, um, raising the kids very amicably. Um, you know, we, we do birthdays together and, you know, with the kids, we do festivals and special occasions. If it's their birthdays, we'll all get together. And, and it's genuinely nice. It's not one of these things where it's, you know, divorced parents awkwardly being around each other. It, it's genuinely nice um, spending time all together. Um, and for me, it's, you know, that's, that's something which I, I would look to protect. And I think that this conversation, um, I would avoid it just on the grounds that it sort of, it, it disrupts, um, a harmony. I think the, the other, the other thing in this is I, I think it all became bigger than it needed to be in the sense that it was unpleasant what happened. But, you know, I, I talked to a lot of people who have been through, um, domestic violence. Um, and, you know, th this is on the lighter end of what people go through. It's, you know, people have been through far worse. Um, and I think for me, it became a bigger thing because I didn't address it at the time. Um, but, you know, it, it's something where through, through the marriage counseling, what, one of the things that I learned in terms of my, my own development is people do have just very different thresholds to conflict. Um, and some of that is, is driven by cultures. Um, so, you know, certain cultures are just very animated and very energetic. Um, my Italian friends would think nothing of, you know, being around the table and screaming and shouting and arguing. And, you know, for them, that's completely normal. Whereas for me, that, that would probably trigger me. Um, and so, you know, I think that it, it's something it's, you know, it's, it's not an excuse. I mean, what, what happened was unacceptable and, and should not have happened. But I, I do think that 
what one of the things I, I took from this is just to recognize that, look, people do have different thresholds. And for me, you know, I think we, we were on very different ends of the spectrum where for me, something like that is very triggering because it, it takes me back to, to, to my childhood. Whereas for her, it's, you know, she came from a culture where it is just naturally louder. Um, and so the, you know, in, in, in her mind, it, it's just not as big an incident as, um, as, as it was for me. And then I, I went and made it bigger by, by not addressing it. I didn't realize how common domestic violence was against men and the statistics shocked me. The UK Office for National Statistics states that one in three men are subjected to domestic violence. That's 757,000 men in the UK. But of that number, only 4.4% of men are supported by local domestic violence services. Clearly shows that men just do not want to seek help when they're being abused. The first time I'd come across a man being abused by a woman was around about 2013, 2014. And I remember a guy telling me how his girlfriend was repeatedly beating him up, shoving him to a wall, punching him in the face, all kinds. And it really shocked me back then because it's something I'd never heard before. And usually you hear about domestic violence from men to women, but not the other way around. Over the last 10 years, more awareness has been raised of men being abused by their partners, but still a lot more needs to be done. Many years ago, I saw a video that went viral of a charity that put out a role play scenario in a very crowded street of a man abusing a woman. Immediately, all these onlookers all the people nearby came to support this woman and reprimand the man. Then afterwards, they completely switched the roles and the woman was actually the one abusing the man. And no one came to help this guy. People were laughing at him, people were watching, or people saw what went on and just completely ignored it and walked past. What does that say about awareness in society of men being abused by their partners? It's drummed into men from a very young age, the need to have power. You look at cartoons, you look at different toys, they're of these huge, strong, muscular men. The ultimate thing is to be big and strong and powerful and not let anyone take advantage of you or disrespect you. Asking for help and being rescued goes completely against that ideology. Just like Zahir did in this episode, many men have this feeling of, if I have a problem, I should be able to deal with it. And I think this word should is not really helpful. And I can think about this from my own life as well. When I've been going through difficulties, I felt like I should be able to deal with this because I'm a man. But that just led me into more problems and more difficulties. Once I started to reach out for help, that's when things began to get better. With Zahir's story, sometimes you just really do not know what's going on beneath the surface. I remember meeting Zahir for a coffee before we did the podcast episode, and he just seemed so calm, so zen you'd almost have this impression of he's never had anything bad happen to him in his life. And we make these assumptions about people all the time. If you're affected by any of the issues in today's episode, please reach out to the Mankind Initiative. Their website is mankind.org.uk. I mentioned at the start about us as men caring a lot about financial success. The truth is, we all want to make money and excel in our work. But understanding what drives us to our definition of success is important. That's why the team and I have designed a simple, easy quiz that's going to help you learn a lot about yourself 
and helps set realistic targets for success. It takes less than three minutes to complete. We as men can be incredibly successful, driven individuals, but how we get there is important to understand, particularly for our mental health. Through the man quiz, you'll answer questions about your identity as a modern man. The aim is to better understand who you are to achieve the results you want in your life and work. Click the link to the quiz in the show notes now. You never know, you might just learn something new about yourself that you didn't know before.